Well, good morning. If you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We are back in our study of this gospel. We will be concluding it over the next few weeks. We'll be reading through verse 28. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, you are the one who inspired these words. And we ask now that you would illuminate them. That you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand even challenging passages of your word. All for Jesus' sake. Amen. In January, the New York Times ran an article about astrologer Chani Nicholas. The interviewer noted that she has heard two main criticisms of astrology. One, that it's fake, and two, that it's narcissistic. Yet, she claims that Miss Nicholas manages to sidestep the individualistic obsession because, quote, she approaches it more as a system of encouragement. Then with this in mind, we are told, quote, that Miss Nicholas wanted to offer tangible skills to guide people towards their best life. Well, personally, I'm not exactly sure how Miss Nicholas's variety of astrology overcomes the criticism of being narcissistic. Uh, It's about having your best life. But 
we have to quickly realize that much that passes for Christianity bears that same faulty label. For example, so-called pastor Joel Osteen, one of his books, Your Best Life Now, number one on the New York Times for something like two years, sold over eight million copies. We could multiply examples of these sorts of things. But it does raise a critically important question. Does everything that claimed the name Christianity really align up with Christianity? Or does so much pass as Christianity, which is really nonsense, heretical nonsense, to be blunt? What if large swaths of things that oftentimes are labeled or called or claimed to be Christianity are actually nonsense? Are actually things that fit far better with Chani Nicholas's self-help manual, but with a little Jesus sprinkled on top? I actually think much that passes for Christianity is very narcissistic in itself. So why do I open up this passage with this little discussion? Because I'm going to argue that this difficult passage that we have before us today is all about Jesus telling us that the entire time between his ascension and his return is a time of false teachers, people being led astray, and tribulation. But by saying that, I have already taken a position on what this text says. And this text is famously difficult and famously disagreed upon. One scholar Few chapters of the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than this one and its parallels. The history of interpretation of this chapter is immensely complex. And I will not have the time this morning to engage with all of the different varieties, though I'd love to, and I'd love to have that conversation with you later. I just don't have time to do it. So we will look at this chapter, though, over the next two weeks, today up through verse 28, and lay more of a foundation, so it'll be a bit more teaching this week, so then next week we can kind of tie some things together. But let me just give you a quick little summary, so I don't entirely ignore the fact that there are different interpretations. Here's my way oversimplified view. There are three major camps. The first major camp says that everything in this chapter, or the vast majority of it, is to be back here in the past, leading up to and culminating in 70 AD. The next camp is the polar opposite. They say everything fits over here, or mostly, and it is all about the second coming. I want to argue, following Don Carson and David Wenham and others, that actually this chapter, as I've already said, is about everything that takes place between the ascension and the return, culminating in his return. But it's going to speak of some very specific details regarding Jerusalem in the middle here. So that's what I'll be arguing today, and that's why it is titled, From Now, as in Jesus is now until then. If a slide gets up, that's what what it'll say. From now until then. There we go. So we will look at this text with these three points you see on the board, and we will spend a little time really focusing on the structure, because structure gives us meaning. The way you get it meaning is by seeing how the original author has structured the text. So that's what we're going to do here. We'll look at the question to begin But for context, I actually want to start reading at chapter 23, verse 36. 23, starting at verse 36. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus left the temple and was going away, and his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? 
Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So chapter 23, you'll remember, is the woes. Jesus is declaring the woes against Jerusalem. Declaring its destruction, its imminent destruction. He says, within this generation. And so, coming from that declaration of judgment upon Jerusalem for denying his sonship, his, his kingship, Jesus is now walking away. And the disciples, as they're walking down the mount to the east, up to the Mount of Olives, are like, check out these stones, will you? It reminds me of being in New York City with my daughter and walking through and, and her just looking around. And she was pretty young at the time. We got on the Staten Island Ferry and she says, whoa, look at the big lady. Um, she is a big lady, but there's a lot that goes with that big lady. Well, that's what the disciples are doing. They're saying, look at these stones. And Jesus' response kind of puts, uh, quenches that wick, as it were. He puts out this concern. So he, what he says here is... Every one of these stones is going to be torn down. Not one's going to be left on another. And he makes his way up, and you can just see the disciples like mulling over. Did he say all these stones are going to be torn down? What's that all about? And you can see him as they walk up to the Mount of Olives, and they finally come to him and say, all right, what, when's that going to happen? Well, see, there was a historic belief at the time that the temple was indestructible. It was only going to come down when the end came. The only reason it would come down is that's, that's the end of everything. And so that's what disciples seem to do. And that's why the question, you have to kind of wrestle through in the different views we don't have time to look at, parse these questions different ways. I'm just going to summarize. I think they only understand it as one question, but they phrase it as three ways because they're just like, so when is all this going to happen? You said the temple's coming down and you're coming back and the end of the age. They don't have another category for it, I'd argue. And so they ask, when is this going to happen? But Jesus' response, both initially and I will argue through this whole chapter, is he's doing something with his words. And first and foremost, he's calling them to stop looking here and start looking up there. To stop looking at the earthly Jerusalem and start looking at the heavenly one. To not be so concerned with the here and the now, but to be far more concerned with the then, there. So, we will tie this in with his warnings with the false teachers. Because there's this tendency among all streams of false teaching to be far more concerned with life now with the things we have here and now, with health and wealth and prosperity, rather than being concerned with God's glory and with the age to come. And we understand that temptation, do we not? Because we live here and now. You wake up and you have bills due. You have pains and sicknesses. So we understand the, the, the tendency to try to always make everything about now. And moreover, there are Scripture texts that we have to wrestle with to talk about how to live now. Those are all things we have to wrestle with. But this discussion is about the kingdom. His kingdom. And so notice what he does in this gospel already. Here's a little background because if the disciples would have been sharp and paying attention to Jesus, this is what they would have heard when he's talking about his coming kingdom. Earlier in this gospel, Jesus taught, if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that is the godless, they worry about these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. This might be summarized. That those who know God are to trust him to provide. Not worry incessantly about this provision. 
Rather, their thoughts are to be consumed with God, with who he is, with his glory, with knowing him more. And that's the exact opposite of what the disciples are doing. They're marveling at these human creations, at this temporal, spatial stuff. And Jesus is calling them to the eternal kingdom. He had done this already back in Matthew chapter 5, where he lays out the kingdom parables. Just listen to the language of some of these kingdom parables. Here's some of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, for your reward is in heaven. The disciples are so consumed with this, but Jesus calls them away to look elsewhere. And friends, if we are more concerned with this life, with this comforts, with, with these accoutrements, we might say, then we're missing it. Because Jesus calls us to look to the heavenly, eternal kingdom. He points out the buildings to show them the ultimate emptiness. All the buildings are coming down. They're not going to be left. Don't look at the earthly Jerusalem. Look at the heavenly. But when will this kingdom come? That's their question, is it not? So look with me at verses 4 through 14. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Did you happen to catch the bracketing that's taking place in these verses? Verses 4 and 5, they give you this pattern. Many false teachers, many will be led astray. Then it's repeated in verse 11. Many false teachers, many will be led astray. It's a bracketing technique. This is the way an author structures a passage so you'll understand what's going on. And verse 14, many try to argue that this can be explained in any other way. I don't see it. But it says, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he's bracketing this entire time between his ascension and his return. It will be a time of false teachers that many will be led astray. The one who endures till the end will be saved. Well, when is that? Well, when the gospel's gone to the nations. So that's why it's from now, Jesus is now, until then. And he takes great pains to explain the delays. You hear all the superlatives, many, many, many. There will not just be wars, but there'll be rumors of wars. Think about this for a second. How are there wars and rumors of wars being heard about in a world with no communication technology? It all had to take long time to get that information back. He's explaining this long time. Moreover, he goes on. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, plural. There will be earthquakes, plural. In various places, plural. He's multiplying language to show this extensive period of time. 
And he still goes on to say in verse 8, and that's still not the end. That's just the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus is turning their eyes to heaven. Don't worry. You want to know about all the things happening here? Don't worry about that. My kingdom's coming. Be focused on my kingdom. Now, the pattern here of this false teaching and many being led astray is repeated in 22 through 28. Unfortunately, our ESV, I believe, really makes a mistake by putting the paragraph the way they do, and they make the paragraph of 15 all the way through 28. I I don't think that's helpful. The NIV is far better. It puts a paragraph break at 22. We could argue about that later. But for now, look at 22 through 28 with me, and you'll see this pattern again. If those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. So once again, this structure, false teachers, people being led astray. So I would argue that verse 4 through verse 28 is bracketing the entire time. It'll be an entire long period of time that is characterized by false teaching, by many being led astray. Moreover, it's characterized by tribulation. We'll look at that more next week, but that word shows up in verse 9, and then again in verse 29, speaking about what came before it. It will be this long period of time. So then the question is, then what is verse 15 through 21 doing? How do they fit? Well, we'll answer that in our third point. But before we do, if Jesus is arguing, and I think he is, that this entire period of time is one of false teaching and people being led astray, there's much we need to think on. So, first, if this entire time from now until then is that type of period I've just laid out, and if you are at all familiar with your New Testament, then you will realize the repeated, repeated, repeated refrain of warnings against false teachers and false teachings, of being led astray, of falling away. And I fear it's a theme that many don't take seriously. We have ministries that are called Christian who say things like this on their what we believe. Healing is the privilege of every member of the church today provided through Jesus' death on the cross. Or how about this? A related ministry. This is their vision statement. To see believers experiencing the fullness of the blessing, which includes divine healing and supernatural prosperity. And it goes on. As someone whose wife has a terminal illness, and almost every moment of her waking day experiences pain, this stuff infuriates me. And it passes his Christianity. That is just horrendous at so many levels. But don't take it from me. Let's listen to somebody else. How about John Piper? John Piper asked the question, what what do you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? He says, what I feel about it, quote, is hatred. It's not the gospel. It is being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling people a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. But let's, let's not give an American critique to this thing. Let's, let's back up. One of our missionaries that we support, Deudene Tamfu, he's a native of Cameroon, Africa, and he talks about what a scourge this stuff is in Africa. He just wrote an article. You can find it on Desiring God. This is what he writes. The so-called prosperity gospel is a perversion of the biblical gospel, according to which Jesus is a means to the blessing of health, wealth, and power. 
The preachers of this gospel may quote God's word, but they twist it to support their false theology. By taking passages out of context, by applying a naively literal hermeneutic, by embracing an over-realized eschatology, and by misapplying the text, prosperity preachers distort the scriptures and exploit those who follow them. Here's the thing. Friends, we don't need to go to a modern person to critique the prosperity gospel. We'll go back to Paul, writing to Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And Jesus, in our passage, we just read, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. They will do a lot of wonderful things to get you to believe in them. We could go on and on, but here's one last word from Paul to Timothy in his final letter, right before he's ready to die. He writes this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, we could go on. The New Testament is replete with warnings. That false teaching will come. But not just that false teaching will come. That it will lead many astray. I think sometimes Christians have this overly naive view that false teaching is just easy to spot. Like, of course that's false teaching. And a lot of the faith healing stuff is. That's just blatantly heinous. But Jesus wouldn't repeat over and over and over again in this text that many will be led astray if it wasn't slippery. If it wasn't hard to pin down one, one scholar's put it this way. I, I think people think that the way that false teachers work is they walk up and they go, here's a plate full of heresy. Dine and damn your soul. No. No, of course not. They give you a gourmet meal, which is a little bit of poison. So you celebrate every bite that is destroying your soul. That's the way false teaching works. False teaching, in the prosperity gospel in particular, turns the Bible into a mirror of erised. Which is, if you're not familiar with the Harry Potter series, it's in the Sorcerer's Stone. When Harry looks into this mirror, he sees his family, his mother and father, who he never met because they were killed when he was a baby. When his friend Ron looks into the mirror, he sees himself alone as head boy. And you're not explained what this is until the end of the book. Listen to this scene. I have to fight to not read it in Dumbledore's voice I do at home. But here's, here's what Dumbledore says. He sits on the floor next to Harry. He says, you, like hundreds before you, have discovered the delights of the mirror of Erised. I didn't know it was called that, sir. But I expected you to realize what it does. It, well, shows me my family. And it showed your friend Ron himself as head boy. How did you... Well, I don't need a cloak to become invisible, Dumbledore said gently. Now, can you think of what the mirror of Erised shows us all? Harry shook his head. Well, let me explain. The happiest man on earth would be able to use the mirror of Erised like a normal mirror. That is, he would look into it and see exactly himself as he is. Does that help? Harry thought. And then he said slowly, it shows us what we want? Whatever we want? Yes and no, Dumbledore said quietly. It shows us nothing more and nothing less than the deepest, most desperate desires of our heart. You who have never known your family, see them standing around you. Ronald, 
who's always been overshadowed by his brother, sees himself standing alone ahead of them all. However, the mirror will give us neither knowledge or truth. Friends, it's been well said that this is a mirror. What do you see when you look into the mirror of Scripture? Do you see the glory of God? Do you marvel at the wonder of who he is and what he has done? Do you find satisfaction in him regardless of life circumstances? Or when you read the Bible, does it tend to be yourself that the first thing you see? Your situation or, or how it can apply to you? False teaching is like the mirror of Erisin. It drives us to look into this book and find satisfaction in our ideal situation rather than in God himself. And that is the most hateful part of false teaching. It causes us to see God not as an end in himself, but as a means to some other end. And I, I know there might be some folks here who've grown up with this stuff, been influenced by some of these things. And so I don't say all this to be harsh, but to be a warning for you, because that's what Jesus is doing. He's giving us a warning. There will be many, many people led astray by these things, genuinely thinking that they're being taught good truth when in fact they sold a pack of lies. But that's enough about what this age is about, this age of false teaching and of being led astray. Now we have to dig back into this text and find out how it is that 15 through 21 fits into this larger section which has been bracketed. This is the destruction. Look at verses 15 to 21 with me. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who's in the field not turn back and take his cloak. But alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So given the structure that I laid out, arguing that there's intentional, repeated phrases showing us the bracketing of the entire inter-advental age between the two comings, as it were, did you catch how 15 through 21 contrasts how different it is than the others? Everything's fast. Everything's local, both temporally and spatially. Whereas elsewhere, it's nations and kingdoms. It's here and there. It's all the way till the end. But now, in 15 and 21, it's not like that. It is localized. It's in Judea, on the hills. It's on the rooftops in Jerusalem. It's going to happen fast. First, we are introduced by this abomination of desolation, which is why we read the passage earlier from Daniel. You can go back and read about this in Daniel. I wish we had time to go through it. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderfully complex system of eschatology that you can wrestle through with all these things. In short, Daniel prophesied the abomination of desolation, and it was the prophecy that Antiochus IV Epiphanes would come into Jerusalem and desecrate the temple, slaughtering a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. And that happened. And so Jesus says, there will be this abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. Let the reader understand, meaning let the reader of Daniel understand it's going to be like that. The same thing, same type of thing, it's going to happen again. It's going to be a desecration of the temple, of the holy city. So that's what's happening. But then he goes on and he gives all these really, again, staccato, quick warnings. And he says, when this happens, flee to the mountains. And he says, if you're on your, your rooftop, here's what's going on. They had flat roofs in those days. It's hot, arid climate. So you would go up onto your roof later in the day to catch the breeze. And he says, if you climb up on your roof and you catch the breeze and you see the armings coming, 
Don't go down. Don't get your stuff. You run from rooftop to rooftop and over the wall, and you flee for the mountains. And the other one is when you're out, you're out in the field, and you're doing your farming, and you see them come. You don't go back for your cloak. You run. You drop your hoe, and you run. You flee. He said, oh, women who are, who are pregnant or nursing, it's going to be rough. You better hope it's not winter or the Sabbath. Why? Because the immediacy of the fleeing will be delayed because people aren't going to want you to go. Notice how different these sections are. Over here, long, drawn out, these warnings of this, the end will come later and all these things, but not here. In these verses, it's immediate, it's fast, and the warning's coming. So I would say that verses 15 through 21 then are telling us about the destruction of Jerusalem, and particularly the temple, in 70 AD. And he's warning them to come up to it. Now, from a historical perspective, here's the thing. All the Christians fled. There's different accounts of how it all went down, but all the accounts agree. The Christians fled. They were reading Matthew, and they said, it's time to go. So they left. They were gone. When Rome fell on Jerusalem, it was just the Jews who were left, those who were, like the disciples, ironically, clinging to the wonder of this temple building and of this holy city. Just like happened when Jerusalem was destroyed before. So then one more time, to to recap, in 4 through 14 and 22 through 28 is this picture of this whole time. But in the midst of that whole time is going to be a great tribulation. Verse 9 speaks of there will be tribulation. Verse 29 says the tribulation of those days. But verse 15 through 21 speaks of the great tribulation. Not like anything before it, not like anything after it. The great tribulation is done and over with. It happened in 70 AD. That's what's going on. But there still is tribulation. There's still suffering. That's, that's what's going on here. And they've been warned to flee. So Jesus' disciples are expected to and charged to, Jesus is shocking them out of their awe of the temple to say, don't look at this. Lots going to happen. Don't look at this. Live today in light of tomorrow. Live today in light of the kingdom that's come. Now, the temple's going to just get destroyed. Yes, that's going to happen. And it's going to be the most horrific, great tribulation you can fathom. Uh, Many have have commented, but if that's the great tribulation and there's going to be nothing that bad before or after it, I mean, surely Auschwitz was worse. Surely World War II was worse. And, of course, there's different ways to wrestle with these things. Is that hyperbolic language? I think the best answer is this. Is when Rome fell on Jerusalem... Nobody got out. The percentage of death, the horrific nature of the suffering, mothers eating their children for starvation, was of such a kind that, praise God, there'll never be anything like that again. But that doesn't mean there's no tribulation. No, the tribulation is going to come until he returns. And all of this, I would argue, makes sense in the larger flow of Matthew's gospel. Because Matthew's gospel is, the slide that we have is, the coming king, the king who brings the kingdom. And it's a kingdom not of earth, but of heaven. It's a heavenly kingdom. It fits with this constant refrain that Jesus calls the disciples to live and look, not to the here and now, but to the there and then. Not to earthly kingdoms and comforts and buildings and temples, but to the eternal. Because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is how we have access to God. Don't ever miss the fact that, don't ever let the masonry cause you to miss the reality The temple always pointed to something so much greater. And that's what Jesus is trying to do to the disciples, to shock them out of this. Because all of the temporal kingdoms and pleasures and comforts, as has been well said, will fall exhausted at eternity's feet and at King Jesus' feet. And yet, until that day, did you catch the other note that runs through this section? 
the good news will go out. Verse 14, the gospel will go out. So it's a time of tribulation, of false teaching, and of many being led astray. And yet, the gospel will go forward. The gospel will resound, be carried to the ends of the world. And during this long period of time, people might get worried. As a matter of fact, this is the argument that Paul's going to have to address with the Thessalonians. They start to worry. Did we miss it? Did we miss his coming? And Paul's like, no, it doesn't work that way. And that's what these two weird verses are at the end, verses 27 and 28, if you wondered about that. Read those again with me. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now that's a weird little saying, is it not? Here's the point. In a pre-industrial world, there's no lights, there's no electricity. With lightning stretches across the sky, you don't miss it. It lights up your life. It cannot be missed. Don't worry. You're not going to miss it. It's going to happen. Just as surely as if you see vultures circling, there's carrion down below. You cannot miss it. So don't worry. It's going to happen. He will come and there will be no avoiding it. Because when the king comes, he brings his kingdom. And we'll look at his return next week. But now that we've kind of laid the pieces of this out, I do want to take a few minutes to fill out and, and, and wrestle with just a couple application points. And perhaps the most obvious is the one I opened up with, is uh, nobody agrees on what this passage means. Uh, one scholar said there's at least six different schools of thought on this interpretation. I overly summarized them into three. Uh, and all of those schools of thought have subcategories and subcategories. Uh, So that should raise the question, I think, why? Why is it that God gave us his word that can be disagreed over? I mean, why is it that there are hard texts? If God's the ultimate author of scripture, and he is, then why are there so many texts which result in Christians disagreeing, even sharply disagreeing at times? Theologically, This concept revolves around the doctrine known as the clarity and obscurity of Scripture. This has been a a passion area of study for me for a while now, and I had to to hinder, uh, refrain, and hold back from giving you onslaughts of quotes because I love this topic so much. Here's, Here's just a couple. The moment you wrestle with the clarity of Scripture, you're also confronted with the fact that you have texts like this. Not everything is that clear, meaning there's disagreement. So what do you do? How do you navigate these things? One scholar has put it this way, that the reformers agreed scripture remains filled with sublime mysteries that far exceed the ability of our minds to grasp them. Augustine put it like this, some of the expressions are so obscure as to shroud the meaning in the thickest darkness. But why? Why does God allow there to be hard texts? Why does God allow there to be entire schools of theology that people disagree on? Well, This might sound like a bold claim, but God is working out in time his sovereign decree. It is his will. Now, I know, like it's his will that we disagree. Oh, yeah, well, don't listen to me. Listen to Augustine. This is what Augustine says. He says, God wanted them. I do not doubt that all of this was divinely arranged, Augustine says, for the purpose of subduing pride by toil. Do you see what Augustine's saying? God is not concerned as much about us all being 100% in agreement on every little text as he is with us 
constantly bowing before his holy word. Coming back again and again and submitting our ideas, our thoughts back to his word. So that our system doesn't rule, but our God does. So that we don't stand over this book and tell it what it can mean. But we stand under it and we bow and submit before God's holy word. Other reformers have said similar things. But hard passages and disagreements among Christians should reveal our finiteness. They should cause us to go back to the text again and again. Which is to say that the short answer for why God's word contains difficult topics which Christians disagree on is because they constantly re-reveal our utter dependence upon God and his word. And though it's beyond our understanding why he would do things this way, God is working out his providential plan and he is bringing glory to himself and using all these various means to that end. So, whether or not you are persuaded by this particular presentation, this understanding of how this text fits, uh, the one thing, or three things I'm going to give us that we can all agree on, on this text. First is this. Most importantly, we agree on the gospel. That is the thing Paul says, which is, I gave to you that which is of first importance. And in the original it says, the gospel which I gospeled to you gospeling. It's just he's magnifying the centrality of that first importance of the gospel. And praise God, Christians agree on that. But a second thing I think we all agree on in this text is the reality of judgment and that God will bring judgment on those who deny his son. And then a third thing, though you may disagree that it's found in this text, we all agree that the son is coming back in glory to rule and to reign and to bring his judgment with him. You see, I would argue that the central thrust of this passage, as I'm saying over and over again, is that we're being called. Matthew's doing something with words, and he's causing us to say, stop worrying about all these things, earthly kingdoms and times and systems. No, turn your eyes to heaven. And we'll see that really played out next week. Because even the greatest life here and now will be dust in the wind compared to then. So he's calling us to look to and for and hope in the king in his beauty and the kingdom he will bring. But finally, I close with this. Is that if you're a Christian here today, God's judgment should be one of, if not the most encouraging things to you. Now that might set you back a little bit. How can judgment be so encouraging? Because the gospel which we all agree on is this. That Jesus is going to judge justly but for Christians, for those who have heard of how they have committed treason against their king and those who have repented and believed in him, then Jesus was judged in your place. See, the judgment is an incredible teaching for us Christians because every time we come across a passage of judgment, it should cause us to say, oh Lord, how could you be judged instead of I? How could you take that judgment in my place? Because that is the gospel. And whenever it is that the king returns to judge the living and the dead, we will rejoice because he already took that judgment for us. We're going to close our time today singing these incredible words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. And the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. 
The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Would you pray with me?